From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 181 of the Killing It podcast. Dave showed up with a cold. I have allergies. What do you got going on, Ryan? It's just a real cold, too. I tested, I swear. <laughs> I swear. I swear. It's only a cold. I, I am broadcasting live or on podcast recording from the great country of Scotland. And uh, if, if you've never been, I, I will I will be the Chamber of Commerce for the entire country of Scotland. <laughs> and I will tell you 11 reasons why you cannot not come to this place. It is absolutely spectacular. Good country. It's a good country. I love me Scotland in August. That's the only time the weather is good. All right, Jess. Actually, we've had uh, we've had sixty-eight degrees in sunshine. So there you go. Wow, that's that is very unscottish. You got you get that is very very unscottish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents. What smell brings back great memories? Ooh. So for me. Well, almost I have so many things from my mom's cooking when I was young, but apple pie, which is funny because I don't eat that much apple pie, but I sure love the smell of it. Mm -hmm. See, I think that's an important thing, whether or not it actually tastes good or whether it was your favorite thing. Smells have a different impact, different psychological impact on you. I, I go back to homemade pasta, right? The, the homemade pasta sauce was phenomenal. I, I would I would prefer to eat that. But there is something about the smell of making pasta at home. My mom used to do it when I was little. And uh, that is that is a thing that if you happen to go to a restaurant, and they make their own on site. You can tell <laughs> you guys are so mature with your answers. I'm going to go like so immature. <laughs> Cheap beer, like stale cheap beer, <laughs> takes me back to co college days and just like lots, like carefree, lots less responsibility. Uh, there's this, that just really bad beer will really <laughs> take me back to being young <laughs> and see, a lot dumber. See, and that's the thing, right? <laughs> it's stuff you wouldn't actually drink right now if somebody gave it to you for free. But the smell of it takes you back. To I the have to say, the, the, the smell, when you say those words, that smell is very clear in my head. I'm not sure it is associated <laughs> with positive things, though. I, you know, like, because, and I wasn't a big, I wasn't a drinker in college until my senior year, actually. And so, like, but it's it's the association with the good times and hanging out in lots well, I, of fun places. I will places. say, one of the things that we don't get much of today is actual beer, beer, beer flavored beer. Right. My dad drank <laughs> yeah. beer. He didn't drink a lager or a Pilsner or, or you know, whatever. He drank <laughs> beer. And so if you get like a red stripe, that's got a, a, a smell and a taste that is quite distinct from all of the, the fancy dancy beers. See, I'm holding myself back. This is a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I was going to say red stripe just smells like vacation. All right. Lit. Listeners should be doing all beer podcasts because this, this may have to be a bonus episode is distinctly breaking with the format. We can do that. We can do a killing it live with beer. With beer. 
Do you know about Nodeware? Nodeware is an in-demand and real-time cybersecurity solution that helps businesses reduce the risk of ransomware or other cyber attacks, all with breakthrough simplicity and affordability. With truly continuous vulnerability scanning, even during normal business hours, you'll get real-time alerts of network access and newfound risks with easy and insightful reports to take action on and report to your customers. Want to learn more? Visit nodeware.com slash partners to find out more. So I will kick us off with a data survey, uh, and I'm going to quote right from the piece, a new survey of over 500 IT decision makers at small and medium businesses from threat detection and response specialist Vade show 69% say a serious breach had bypassed their current email security solution. It's perhaps not surprising that the SMBs are increasingly likely to turn to managed services providers with 96% of organizations either currently outsourcing or at least some of their needs to MSPs or planning to do so in the future. Gents, what's your reaction to this, uh, to this piece of research? My first reaction is bullshit. <laughs> and, and let me explain why that is my first reaction. 96% of SMB organizations either are already paying an MSP or are planning to pay an MSP for at least a portion of their cybersecurity management services. Uh, I the, the latest and greatest research that I can get my hands on indicates that the total penetration of managed security services into the SMB space is somewhere barely north of 10% of the SMB marketplace. If 96% of people tell me uh, I'm either already outsourcing my managed services for security or I intend to do so soon, my answer is, okay, so that was the public response that everybody wanted to hear. Now tell me what you're actually going to do because MSPs around the world, if this was actually true, you couldn't possibly grow your business fast enough to keep up with that kind of market demand. Wow. All right. You went right for it, Ryan. And, and so I, yes. I'm going to, I'm going to weigh in then next because I, I look, I'm a data nerd. Anybody listens to business tech knows that like I have spent so much of my time quoting surveys like this. Uh, there's a reason I always include who did the survey and which company sponsored it because I, I do believe that there is insights to be gained from these kinds of surveys, but you've got to put on your uh, critical thinking hat to understand, well, why did they do this survey? What are they trying to sell? What's the end goal to that? My takeaway here is much more around the, yeah, these email security solutions are bypassed by people. Like that literally is what I was, what I immediately went to. Uh, and I immediately also went the same place you did, Ryan. I was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're just trying to tell you that like outsourcers do this so that, you know, they lump together a bunch of the survey questions to get something that says you should sell this thing. You pull out the insight that is useful, which is the like, oh, the breaches are happening even despite the current security email solution. That's what I take away from this one. And we should be looking with a critical eye of maybe that alone isn't going to do it, or maybe that's not the total solution to the problem. That's the insight that I get from the survey. It's probably not what the vendor wanted, <laughs> but you know, but it's perfectly fair. Right. And so, so I, I'm very critical as one who cites all of these things all the time. I'm very critical of understanding, well, why did this survey go into market? 
Um, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting was that 87% of the people who are decision makers said we could be doing more. <laughs> and I'm wondering, so the other half of that equation is, so why aren't you? And 80% say that they're, you know, the built-in security systems, like for their email, are not strong enough. And they know that. And so the question is, why aren't they spending more, right? And, and whether it's because this was put together by a security vendor or not, um, those are legitimate questions. And so I, I think it, the important thing that's sort of not stated in this article, that's, which is about 15 pages, the thing that's not stated is, how do you have a conversation that's honest with these decision makers? Because they know they need more, they will not buy more, they have not bought into the more, <laughs> and every time you come and talk to them about more, they say, well, that just costs money. And they need to have a conversation about what it costs them to be insecure. They, and you know, we don't want to sell on fear, but the reality is 69% have been breached despite what they've done so far. They do need to do more and they, they can't avoid that conversation. Well, and see, I, I think again, to take this Dave, where you were going to put a positive spin on it from a vendor's point of view. I've spent a ton of time looking inside of these tools across the cybersecurity space, and I am sincerely impressed with the capabilities of these detect and respond kinds of technologies. I have multiple vendors, different pieces of software that you can use. I am, I've been in it for 25 years. I sincerely am impressed by what this software can do. But to your point, Carl, a uh, tool by itself does nothing. It needs continuous monitoring, proper patching, all the configuration, all, all the always on evergreen approaches to the administration of this stuff. It is not a question of what the tool can do. It is a question of how you persuade the customer to give money in return for improved security. In other words, and again, this, this is a, a record I have been scratching for a couple of years here, um, it is not a question of whether or not the technology is good enough. It's a question of whether or not we know how to sell it as an industry. And I think the observation here, to your point, Carl, the observation is we don't know how to sell it. We have tools that are great. We have customers that are in desperate need. One plus one ought to equal ever increasing consumption. If it doesn't, then the problem is not the software and the problem is not the customer's urgency. The problem is our ability to connect the dots in a persuasive sales process in between. That's where we're at. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I want to push back. I want to push back a little bit. And I think this is not all spend is equal. Like, look, I, I did an editorial that I got a lot of pushback on where I call it IT security attacks. Right. The reason is nobody wants to buy this stuff. If I'm owning a business, I do not want to spend money here. It does not make me any money. And I think it's the reason I put this this premise out is is back to the statement around being realistic around spend. I do think you want to separate out the different kinds of spend and why you spend money on technology. Some of it should be spent to grow top line revenue. That's the best in my good, better, best model. Because you need to do that. And if you can get that money, you might be able to get some of the money to do security of that because some of the investment is. But but oftentimes, it all gets lumped into the same bucket. And then that the, the expense portion of it drags the whole pile down. 
And so it's not useful to view all of this stuff as equal. And it's not just a generic, we can't sell it problem. It's oftentimes the, you're not positioning the spend effectively against the business goals and you gotta be doing well, that. Well, and I agree with that because the, I have to say, every time you ask people about what's ABC, the money piece of it comes in low. In this, in this uh, survey, it's in the 20%, 23, 27% say that cost is the major factor in why, you know, what they're challenged with. The reality is they don't understand this stuff enough to buy it, and that's the MSP's fault. So even though they say, I'm not buying it because of money, that's not why they're not buying it. And you need to get under the hood and find out what, why they're really not yeah. buying it because they're never going to understand it. So if you want to learn how to sell security, you have to learn why they're not buying. And that's not an easy answer. No, because nobody wants to buy it. <laughs> I know. Dave, I'll, I'll wrap it up with a quick observation. You said the magic word in there. You have to position it as a business outcome, not as a tool that is a tax on your expense line items. What you just said, was a very compelling professional way of saying sales. Right. Sadly, that's it for this topic. Topic number two today, California has passed and is waiting for the governor to sign uh, something called the Age Appropriate Design Code Act, which is to say they are asking, they're forcing uh, people who write code, people who write program programs intended for consumption by children uh, that they need to have some safeguards in place. All wonderful, delightful, good news, and we pointed to a couple of articles about that, uh, primarily one from Wired Magazine. So the goal here is to say, look, don't put ads, don't put inappropriate images in front of children, right? All of that is good stuff. The problem is, in my opinion, that they also have attached it to an inability to to actually enforce the law. The fines are $7,500 per affected students. So that means, let's say that 10 million students are affected. <laughs> That's a $7.5 billion fine for one incident. Either uh, there's only like two companies on earth who can afford that, or uh, they just take all of their money and put it into fighting the law instead of enforcing it. And I just think it's a, it's sort of like good intention combined with just plain stupidity when it comes to enforcement. Um, I think it's better to say, hey, Facebook and Google and whoever is writing this stuff, yeah, uh, uh, YouTube, uh, if you're gonna have children involved, let's agree on some guidelines. And I'd much rather see us get together with a bunch of these folks and say, what can we as an industry do rather than have the government just say, here's some rules and we'll fine you out of business if you break them. All right, I wanna push back. Cause Carl, that's not what it would. says. <laughs> Are you right? But that's because it's not what it says. And we quote, I'm quoting the article. If a company violates the, the law, they have 90 days to come up with a fix or the California Attorney General's office could extract a fine of up to $7,500 per affected child. That's a different statement than saying it's a $7,500 fine. In fact, it is a much more nuanced statement. It is saying the, look, we found a problem. We are now asking you, industry, to fix it. We can approve the fix, and then there's no fine. 
and we have leeway anywhere from zero to $7,500 on that. It's much more nuanced than that. And it's real, I, I'm, this is, you know, I, this is definitely, I'm on the, the, the f different side of this than you on this, but I'm pushing back saying like, we need to be a little bit more trusting of some of the very smart people that are in public service saying like, look, we're giving them some parameters, we're giving them some tools, let's actually then empower them to work with these companies and then be responsive. There's a process. I would also this. point out you live in a very different state with a very different attorney general. <laughs> well, okay, but but by the way, this is why you you dig into who you vote for and like and what an attorney general matters. I mean, I get all of that, but I'm also but I'm also looking and saying like, there's a lot of innovation coming out of California, right? <laughs> like, like there's a lot of that stuff even with a regulatory environment. I think it, it, it's it's easy to go, it's a $7,500 fine every single time, it will immediately drive them out of business. Now there's this whole range in the middle, right? And do I do I think that, I mean, would I rather that like a Virginia attorney general be working on that? Probably, because they, they tend to be a little bit more pro-business than they find it. But the intention of the way the law is written is to give this space. I hear what you're saying, right? Like, and, and, I, and I, I can see it easily being abused, but by the way, there is a space here for, for it to work with industry as written. Well, and, and again, I will say to, to put your two points together, um, very good intention, very appropriate topic to be focused on, perhaps not the most effective execution of the intention, but it is focused on something very real and substantial. I want to put a little scope to this, right? If you think about what has happened in the world of education, especially in the K-12 marketplace in the last two and a half years, as we've gone remote pandemic, all of this digital learning, um, the industry, the technology industry has spent two and a half years selling quite literally every speck of silicon that we could find anywhere on the planet in the form of a student device to get a computer, some kind of an interactive digital device into the hands of every single student we possibly could. Now, we've discussed at length on this program before, we're not done. We don't nearly have every child with all of that capability. But the one thing that has become glaringly obvious in that process is that most of those things sit idle most of the time because there is no content. Now, if you tell me that there is now a brand new marketplace of 10, 20, 30, 50 million student devices that have been thrown out there into the world and now everybody with government funding happened to look at that and went, oh, wait a minute, we don't have any software, we don't have any curriculum, any actual content to fill or utilize those devices, dot, dot, dot. We're gonna start throwing money at the industry and you know we're going to have a problem with content. You know we're gonna get things in there that is inappropriate, things that are not age specific. We're gonna create a problem. Now, this is the first time that I can legitimately say that we look at government. Whether they did it well or not well, we've spent three years on this podcast telling people, you know, you might want to, like, I don't know, educate a legislator <laughs> on things like email and things like spam and things like ransomware, because they literally are years behind the curve. This is a time where a massive regulatory body is actually on the power curve. Like they're regulating content for student curriculum at the time when that is absolutely mission critical. 
I agree. I think it is totally ham-fisted and it'll never actually have the intended effect with the with that great big like 800 pound gorilla fine that's hanging over people's head but at least they're on the topic before it's like 40 years old news. well I, I will tell you my favorite analogy on something like this is always you get a problem with your neighbor should you knock on the neighbor's door or call the police and this says, call the police. Do not engage the neighbor. Do not talk to them. Do not negotiate with them. Do not prevent the problem before it happens. Let's just call the police and get out the big hammer. Uh, and, and I don't know, again, other states may act differently. Around here, what this means is you charge them with the highest fine possible and you can negotiate down from there. And so I, I just think it's absurd. And I think the good news is, We'll regulate the hell out of it and uh, make it unenforceable anyway. So there's always that. <laughs> you may end up in that space, but I, you know, and, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm gonna gonna soapbox for a moment with it with this. Is I, I really want to have a spirit though of of a lot of people in public service get get really dumped on inappropriately, and and I'm I'm coming off of I, mean, I was just on vacation and and want and visiting a friend abroad, uh, who's uh, you know on wor working in the U.S. Embassy abroad. And if you want to see an amazing logistics operation and you want to see a bunch of people doing really good work abroad, go talk to people that work in embassies because they are on their frigging game in terms of running uh, services for Americans abroad. And, and like, I mean, and you look at those, you get firsthand experience with, with people that are doing good work. And oftentimes it's real easy to be dismissive of all of this without looking at the, there are a lot of organizations that are doing really good work. And I just want to, want to make sure that we are not immediately jumping to it's always bad. Yes. We should be absolutely looking at it. Carl, do I think that, that this is going to go smoothly? No, absolutely. I don't, but I also want to take it from a spirit of, I think the, the people in, enacting this have the right idea. They've built a framework and it's going to iterate a whole bunch of times. Uh, and by the way, protecting children seems to be something these businesses yeah. are not doing on their own. Uh, so maybe we do want to have some of this. This, this Final word on this, I'll just say we have too many laws in place where people said, hey, you know, who could possibly be against, you know, mothers against drunk drivers? Who could possibly want to defend attacking children? Da, 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 da. So any law that we pass and we have that as our excuse, we get to pass the law no matter how bad it is. So... Maybe. Maybe we're out of time. <laughs> Maybe. Exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll move on for that, from that one. The concept of good intentions that might need some refining. Our next topic, we're going to talk about some bad intentions <laughs> that really, really need to have some attention that, put on them. So we linked to an article in the show notes, and I, I would highly encourage everybody to actually click and read on this one because there was a moment in the middle of reading this article that I had a, a visceral reaction of just not just disbelief, but honest to goodness anger at the fact that people think that this is OK. So give you a little context on this thing. We're talking about the idea of data tracking for identification purposes linked to a unique device ID for advertising purposes that is then aggregated and sold on subscription to police departments around the country for the purpose of saying, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you've done, but based on my subscription, I can track everywhere you go, everything you do, not just today, 
and not just with the benefit of a warrant that is compliant with the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, but I can go back three years in time. I can track you in real time and use that for a warrantless search to identify without the burden of probable cause. Now, we've talked on this program at length about the fact that all this tracking and identification data might be scary because it might at some point get used in nefarious ways. Uh, guys, it's not a might anymore. This is happening in the real world. And I'd love to know what in the hell do we actually do about this? You mean there's a privacy law making its way through Congress? Maybe, just maybe, <laughs> we, look at a, we, we look at actually defining some of this. What a novel idea. <laughs> but, but, so I've mentioned this before, but in this often happens with technology is that the technology's out there, the law enforcement figures out how to use it, and they're just one, literally one step ahead of regulation that says, no, you can't use it that way, or you should use it this way. And this is just like, I mean, some smart law enforcement officer looked at this and said, hey, big data, we can track a pattern of people who do this and this and this and this and this. And it's like predicting, oh, they're going to shoplift. This is, it's it's not quite final verdict, but it'll do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, look, I mean, it, you know, I'm on my soapbox yet again. I'm on my, but, but this is the element of like, I always look for what's the warrant structure around this. And be, the fact that they don't need a warrant to get this tells me, well, it's, it's legal, right? It's going to, they, they're, they are reasonably confident that there are some lawyers at this that have figured out that they, they can get away with this. And that's why we would want to have some level of definition of what the expectation of privacy is in order for that to fall under the area where they have to get a warrant. We actually do have systems for this. Carl, you're right. If the laws, if they're ahead of the laws, well, we actually should define this stuff if we're interested in having that level of, of privacy. I actually, while I bristle and I don't like law enforcement doing this, I am looking going, well, they're not, it's, it does not appear to be illegal. Well, uh, perhaps we should fix this. So, so <laughs> some of that comes down to, again, I'd love before the law gets involved for them to have a conversation amongst themselves and say, you know, it's sort of like when you do research, it may or may not be legal to do a certain kind of research involving certain kind of questions with certain kinds of audiences. But universities have research panels and you take it to the ethics panel and they say, yes, you can or, you, or no, you should not do this kind of research. You can discuss the ethics of something separate from whether or not it's legal. And you can look at the bigger picture and say, is it in the interest of law enforcement to engage in this behavior, which hasn't been determined to violate the Fourth Amendment, but it might violate the spirit of the Fourth Amendment, right? So so why don't we regulate ourselves before somebody else steps in and says, no, thou shalt not? Yeah, see, that, that that's the problem, right? Because to, to kind of dig in a little bit deeper, the reason that they are able to do this and not run afoul of the law is that it is positioned as anonymized data, right? Like that ad ID that's associated with your device, if they take your name off of that, then it's not giving away anybody's personal information, but if I allow you to see a three-year pattern of where that device went from, and I know 
where you go in the mornings and the afternoons and the nights, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to attach a name back to that anonymized record. And that is the reason actually for the uh, for the expose that we're referring to is that they're saying you're, you're splitting hairs in order to stay nominally legal here. But the ethics of it indicate that it is grossly in violation of the intention of you shouldn't be able to go back in time and identify people's patterns of life without probable cause. That's literally the definition of the Fourth Amendment. The The problem here is the advocacy and the intention, right? Like the use cases that they're talking about in this article are, well, you know, in exigent circumstances, we don't have time to get a warrant. We need to bust down the door and solve the problem. Apply that to privacy data. And if there's something bad about to happen, well, we can't wait for the legal loopholes. We need to make sure that we get in there and stop the problem. Except that when you read the article, and I know I promised you guys I wasn't going to make a reference to this movie uh, again on, on one of our podcasts. But I swear to God, you read the definition of this in this article. And, and my reaction was, dude, you literally just said pre-crime. You literally just said minority report pre-crime and we just you're doing it with machine learning instead of some glowing people in a vat of liquid but that's literally what you're doing is predictive analysis to identify what's about to go wrong instead of just trying to identify the suspects of a crime already committed that part freaks me out well it should <laughs> like like that's and i that apologize was, well, for the minority report. I, I also put a link in the show notes to uh data.gov 335 thousand government databases available for you to use whenever you want for whatever you want. Um, and, you know, I, I get that there are people who are well-intentioned who just want to do their job and they want to find a better way of doing this. And to be honest, we have a real need in our society, right? I mean, more and more we're hearing, hey, you know, we should be able to, to prevent gun violence by having some idea of who the people are that are about to go uh, over the edge. Um, so this is the kind of thing that would, would help you find that behavior, but then it, it still comes down to, but we still have a bill of rights. And so, you know, how do you, how do you draw that line? Cause there's a legit need to figure out some of this, but then the other question is, is it the law enforcement agency that should be doing this, or maybe a mental health agency that should be doing this? Who can legitimately use this sort of procedure. And I just think we need to have a public discussion about that before we say, go ahead, do whatever the hell you want. Well, I would, I would 100% agree with that. I mean, <laughs> that is that is the point of this. And and in fact, I mean, you know, I wear it on, on my sleeve. Like, the, I, I believe in investing more in this. You've literally, should we be separating out some of, of this into mental health uh, services as, as a different from law enforcement? You know, can we get other services available? That That's some of the answers. And we get into all those societal questions that come along with that. And we don't have time for them. <laughs> Sadly, the world is very complicated. <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is the thing. The reason we have all three of our voices on here is that I can freak out and then Carl can actually have a valid, reasonable response about how to proceed on this thing because that suggestion about getting it into the right hands of the right people who could do preventative and not punishment things, that's actually a very tangible solution and, and it makes a whole lot of sense. So I feel like that's progress. And that's all the progress we have for today. 
Thank you for listening to episode 181 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.